We thank you that he is recovering now, Lord. We ask that you would keep your hands upon him. We know you are the great physician. So many prayers have been said in that reminder today. That you not only are the great physician, but you have control over all things, doctors and breathing and all those things. And so we thank you for the successful surgery. We pray for a quick recovery for Grayson. That he would be able to breathe on his own by tomorrow. And Lord, just sustain Josh and Victoria tonight. Um, May their hope and joy and fears and all of that they go through, we're asking you, knowing that you have full control of this, Lord. Would you pray for this little life? Mostly Josh wants us to pray that Grayson would come to know you as his personal Savior. And you would give him a new heart of flesh that he could love his Savior with soon, Lord. And so we pray all these things as your church, your children, who long for the care of this little one, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you for spending a little bit of time in prayer. This is a, a big deal, isn't it? And, um, you can only imagine what this morning was like as uh, they handed that three-year-old across to, uh, to surgeons and so forth. So uh, they have been a great encouragement to the elders as we've been praying with them and keeping in contact and watching their faith, and we're encouraged by that. If you have your Bibles, take them and turn to Exodus chapter 35. We're going to be scooting through about four or five chapters here as we work our way to our last sermon. Next week will be chapter 40, but I want to get through this. And, and there's some fascinating aspects of these passages. And, and as we come to chapters 35 and 39, we find that there seems to be a little bit of repetition, what people think is repetition, and there certainly is there. And because of the repetition, as you read some of the liberals, and every once in a while I go read them just to laugh, um, because they just don't believe in the inspiration of God's word. And some of them will say this, oh, this is repetition, so this means that portions of the Bible are not inspired. Well, they couldn't be more wrong. And, and when you think about this would happen in, in any kind of culture in the ancient world where um, commands were given and... Uh, of told what to go do, and then when they got done and completed, they rehearsed those commands that were given. And so it's just a natural way. And here, God had given divine commands. And now as those divine commands are being fulfilled and completed, they're written down. In fact, the verbs start to change, and you see much more past tense that these things are being completed. And so again, there is some repetition from 25 and 30. We see some of the similar things being talked about, and yet they're, they're talked about in their completion as we get to the temple, the tabernacle, and its furniture here. Now, in 35 through 39, um, really what we see is the recording of Moses' faithfulness to carry out the word of God. And remember, he's a mediator, and so God gave him his word, gave him his covenant, and told him to carry it out. Now, again, he's a type. He, he's a type. He's a Christ type. He's not Christ. He needed Christ to die for him. But he is a type. And Christ also was given a, a covenant to keep, to bring to us, to fulfill, fulfill the old covenant, and usher in the new. And he as well went and did it. And so when we look at this, this is Moses fulfilling the instructions that God gave him. Now, these chapters do differ in many ways in the fact that it's more past tense here. It's, it's, being, it's being done, and there's a focus on the actual construction of this tabernacle. And it's an amazing thing, and, and how God supplied out of Egypt. When, you, when we work our way down, and we'll be skipping through lots of verses, but I want you to catch how much detail is in this, how much uh, precious metals is in this, how, how much animal skins and all kinds of things that come to make up this beautiful tabernacle that's going to be in the center of the people. Now, the emphasis is on the manufacturing and the, and the details of all that God commanded, and as well as, as the people giving. You're going to see a, a great heart of giving out of the people at this point. They're, they have disobeyed, and, and, and uh, God really came down on them, worked through Moses on that. Moses interceded for them. But now they've seen for a while the error of their ways, and they're walking with God, it seems, and they have this heart to give, and we'll see that as well. There's also a tremendous amount of gifted people in here. Uh, not only are they gifted, but the Spirit of God comes upon them and dwells them and strengthens them to do amazing things in their work. And all this, all this is a, a, 
uh, leading up to the coming of the Shekinah glory, that in chapter 40, we'll see this next week, and what a fascinating chapter that'll be, as the Shekinah glory lands and comes down into the temple and shines brightly as the sun, and now God is dwelling again with man. But let's look at a couple aspects here as we work our way through these four or five chapters tonight. Number one, worship, work, and giving are God's design for his people. Well, right off the bat in chapter 35, the first four verses, you see him remind them of the Sabbath rest. And this is important because God wants time set aside for him. And though in the New Testament the day has shifted, God still loves us to set time apart for corporate worship. He wants us to be engaged with each other. He wants us to be engaged with him as a corporate people. Worship never stops for the believer, right? We worship in the mornings and evenings and afternoons. We pray as we work and we talk with our Lord and so forth. Um, But there's a time set apart. And so he reminds the nation. A nation that gets away, well, a people, a God's people, a church that gets away from corporate worship. And this is why this so-called pandemic bothered a lot of church leaders. we We know Satan hates the gathering of the church. And so here, right off the bat, he reminds them that the Sabbath needs to be emphasized. I want you to set apart time. Even though you're going to build this tabernacle, I'm asking a lot of you to get this done. You set apart time to worship me. The next principle we see, in starting in verse 5, is this principle of giving that is done with a tremendous, generous heart from the nation. Look at verse 5 with me. Take from among you the contributions to the Lord. Whoever is of a free, from a willing heart, let him bring it as the Lord's contribution. Gold, silver, and bronze. And then he goes on with a list. Look at verse 21 and 22 as you work down through this chapter. Everyone who has, whose heart stirred in him. This is the response to this, right? Now this is what happened. Everyone whose heart stirred in him and everyone whose spirit moved him came and brought the Lord's contribution for the work of the tent of the meetings And for all the service of the holy garments. And then all whose heart moved them. Both men and women. And they brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and bracelets and articles of gold. So did every man who presented an offering of gold to the Lord. The last time they presented an offering like this it was to a golden bull calf. But their hearts have changed. And they have repented of that. And now they have this Free will offering, in a sense, a willing to give to the Lord. Notice in verse 29, the Israelites, all the men and women whose hearts moved them to bring materials for all the work which the Lord had commanded through Moses to be done, brought a free will offering to the Lord. And then if you look down at verses into 5 and 6 through 19, here is this amazing list. And as I, as I read through this list this week, and last week as I was studying on this, I thought, wow, where did they come up with all this stuff? You know, they brought a lot of stuff out of Egypt. Remember when the Bible says they plundered Egypt? Well, here it is. Because they were slaves, and certainly they had some things they had accrued, but they did not have great wealth. The Bible's clear they were a poor people. Uh, But here, all these things that God had given them, they are now giving back to the Lord. What a great principle of giving. Notice it just was not only just material things that they gave, they, they gave of themselves to the Lord. They gave time and ability. Look at verse 10 with me. It says, let every skillful man among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. And so uh, God gives gifts to all kinds of people, right? And we all have gifts. And so they not only brought um, financial things or material things like gold and silver and bronze and other things, they, they, they gave of their selves. They gave up their giftedness. And, and even if, if their gifts of time and ability um, were amazing, um, God often raises up even unique rulers or leaders among that. Even, and there can be very gifted people, but everyone needs a leader, right? And so look what he does in verse 30. God raises up some particular men here. Then Moses said to the sons of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name... Bezael, and the son of Uriah, and the son of Hur, the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and knowledge and in all craftsmanship. What a great thing God did. So here's this man with um, natural gifts, 
And, he's, and everybody's coming forward. And I imagine as these, as these people are bringing forth their gifts to Moses to build a tabernacle, God uh, announces that uh, Bezel here, and uh, I think it's, we'll see him in a minute, um, Oliab, uh, these two men are brought out as leaders, and Moses doubt, doubtlessly announces them that God has brought them forward to oversee the work of this ministry. Now, notice that these men are naturally gifted. If you read down the next few verses, we realize they're naturally gifted. And they had submitted themselves to the leadership. They submitted themselves to Moses and to what God was doing. And, in, in, and because of that, God endows them with an empowering work of the Spirit to complete this, this amazing tabernacle. It's earthly, and it's, it's, not, the, it's not the tabernacle that we're going to see that Christ enters uh, after his resurrection. We'll see that in a moment here. Um, but it is an amazing work. And it's done out in the desert by a bunch of slaves who are living in tents. And so God endows these people. Look, look at verse 34 with me. Um, he says, He also put in their hearts to teach, both he and Oliab, the son of Ashmach, uh, the tribe of Dan. So not only do they, do they, are they gifted and submit uh, to the leadership and now have this empowering work of the Spirit on their life, they have the heart to teach others. And that's important. If you're going to build something, you have to teach somebody else and help them learn to do it. And then in verse 35, he has filled them, this is Moses writing, with a skill to perform every work of an engraver and of a designer and of an embroiderer in blues and purple and scarlet material and fine linen of a weaver as performs in every work and, uh, and makers of design. So he, he, he teaches them. These two men get endowed with the Spirit. They're already naturally gifted to do certain things. The Spirit strengthens them, comes upon them, and they, they teach others to do it, and then they're filled to finish this beautiful work that needs to be done to glorify the Lord. And I think that's pretty fascinating, isn't it? I see that often, even today. The Lord will raise men and women up to accomplish something to be done, and I marvel at some of your gifts. People go, oh, Scott, you, you do this, and I, I'm limited. My gifts are limited. I watch some of you and marvel at what you do. And, and what a great thing to praise God with. When God gives you a gift, when all of us have a gift, you know you do. The Bible tells us that everyone in this room who's saved has a gift. God, Spirit of God endows you with that. When you serve God with your gift, it is an amazing thing, and it brings great honor to him. One of the things we see is here these men and women serve with great desire to bring glory to God. Look at chapter 36. 1 through 7 here. Here we begin to see that there is a continued description of the work that's going on, this building of this tabernacle. But there's an abundance given. And so these leaders come forth, they're skilled, they're endowed by the Holy Spirit... Everyone's heart in verse 2 is stirred within them to come and perform the work. And then everyone else is stirred to give. And they're giving um, greatly. And, and notice that in verse 3 that they gave so much that they had to put a stop to it. Imagine that. <laughs> I thought, oh Lord, it would really be nice to stand in the pulpit. Hey guys, don't give any much more. We can't spend it. Isn't that a beautiful thing when God stirs in the heart? And, and you know how God blesses this church and God's people here give so wonderfully and we are able to do so much. But this is an amazing statement. They gave so much that they had to stop it. Now when the nation of Israel is walking with God, this happens several times. There's at least three other record, recorded times in the Old Testament when they had to say stop bringing more funds. Remember they're setting chest out and they'd fill it up, empty it, put it back up and finally said this is enough. Solomon experienced this as well. Now, they're giving in these circumstances, and don't forget, they're living in the desert, they're living in tents, God's feeding them um, from manna that falls every night, um, they, they've come out of slavery, and yet they're giving, and they're, and they're giving from their heart now. And I think this shows the willingness of God's people to engage with the work of God when they walk with Him. They devote themselves by applying their God-given skills to, to serve the Lord. And it's a reminder that they're not just dedicated to, to the wealth that they have, of dedicated to God through wealth. They're dedicated to serve with their gifts. Just imagine, I know this is wild, but a church our size, if everyone served to their full potential of their gift, 
What would happen around here? It would almost be scary, wouldn't it? And that's what's happening. That's what's taking place. And again, this isn't the only place. We're going to work our way into Second, First uh, Corinthians on Sunday mornings, and and we're starting there. And we already saw this Sunday morning where Paul, um, one of the great blessings, and I referred to this, was a Macedonian gift, and. And Paul was so grateful because they brought a gift. Now, here he is with a wealthy church that's not giving, and the, the more blue-collared, poorer churches are giving from Macedonia. And he reminds Cor- Corinth in 2 Corinthians, and these are great verses to teach us uh, particularly about the aspects of giving. In 2 Corinthians 8, 5, 8, 3 through 5, he says this, For I testified that according to their ability... Now, listen to this. Now, this corresponds with, with uh, Exodus 36. I testify according to their abilities. Paul says, I can do it. I know who these people are. I was there. I know, I know their incomes. I know what they do. And he was. And most of this is coming from Philippi and Thessalonica and so forth. And, and they gave beyond their abilities. They gave beyond their own accord, he says. Now listen to this. Now this is somebody who's walking with God and desiring to figure out what God's doing and asking to join him. Verse 4 of 2 Corinthians 8 says this. Begging us with much urgent for the favor of participating in the support of the saints. Christians begged Paul to say, take our money <laughs> and, and, and take the gospel and, and take it to people unreached. They begged him to do this. In verse 5 he says this, in this, not as we expect it. We didn't expect this. And then he says this, and this is what's happening in Exodus 35 and 36 as well in Macedonia. But they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of the Lord. They first gave themselves to the Lord. When when you want to walk with God, you say, God, I'm tired of being so self-centered and caught up in all the things that self wants. When you learn to give yourself to the Lord, it's an amazing thing that happened. You trust him in ways that you never knew you could trust him. You exercise faith that you did not know you had. And, and, and I think what's happening in Exodus 35 and 36, and as well in Macedonia, is these people gave their own hearts to God. We give our lives, we dedicate ourselves to you, because we know God will see us through. In the very next chapter, after Paul addresses that, he comes back and talks about what, what was the result of it? And he said in, in, in chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians verse 7, he says, each one ju- must purpose in his heart. So he's, he's responding to the way Macedonians gave, and he's now challenging the Corinth church. They gave from their heart, not grudgingly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And he's, he's talking about the Macedonians. What a tremendous church. And that's why when we study the church of uh, Philippi, we see so much joy in that church. They love the Lord and they know that the joy giver and they're willing to participate and figure out what he's doing. So as we, as we look at chapter 35 and just the beginning of 36, you see the instructions starting to go out. You see, you see God raising up leaders. He's endowing them with the spirit of God and taking their natural gifts and, and making it an amazing work of him to build this tabernacle. And he's moving in the people. He's stirring their hearts to give endlessly to the point where they had more than they needed. Now, second thought this morning. The tabernacle and its furnishings in the priestly garments. When you get into 36, verse 8, all the way 39, we start to see um, the construction of the tabernacle and all the furnishings. And there's such detail and description in here. I'm not going to read this, but I just kind of want to comment as we go down along here. Moses is, is turning the divine, uh, this is what's happening, this divine vision that he has on the mountain as the Lord is giving him the blueprints of the tabernacle. He's now making that a reality. Uh, we're working on a, a new design for another uh, wing, like the 180s that are down there. It's going to be just on the other side for the school and for the church. And you know, when you start to tell people what you're doing, some people can see it because they built before or something, and other people just can't see it. Um, but, but when you start to see a blueprint of it, and you start to see blocks being laid and buildings being formed, you start to understand what's happening. 
And so here Moses has this divine blueprint that the Lord had spoken to him on Sinai. And now chapter 36, 8 through 39, all of those blueprints that God divinely gives him are starting to come out of the ground in a sense. They're starting to build these things. And so these skilled craftsmen, both men and women, are empowered by the Holy Spirit to uh, fulfill this divine directive now. And, and again, chapters 25 through 30, all of these items were described as furnishing there, but they weren't done. Um, they, they were not built, and now he's going to work his way right through them. Um, this Belzell, I think is the way it's pronounced, um, is in charge of the work, and, and he's a fascinating guy. Uh, I, looked, I tried to read on him today and figure out a little more about him as much as historians could bring out. Um, everything they said about him was he was just this naturally gifted man. You put a tool in his hand and he was able to craft things. But now he has the power of the Spirit upon him. And the combination of that, can you imagine the work that was coming done, coming out? And in fact, the work of the tabernacle could not have been done without the gift of the Holy Spirit and this divine enablement, but men had to be willing to submit to the work of the Lord. Now, God uses this artistic ability, but boy, does he put things together. And that's, I think that's what we see a little bit when we, when we watch people who handle the word well. Um, God may endow them with certain oratorical gifts, but God also strengthens them. Uh, musicians, we see that in. But I think it goes beyond that. I think it goes to the everyday man, woman on the job who submits to the Lord and says, God, use me to bring glory to you. Use me to bring glory to you. And those become some of the best workers an employer can ever have. And they become men and women that are dependable and God uses in great ways. And so what's God asked you to do? What, What abilities has he given you? And are those bringing him glory? Uh, when I read, when I spent time just, because it's a lot of reading in here and there's a, lot of, a little bit of repetition of all the other things that God had said, now it's being built. But, but you just thought, wow, what an amazing group of people. When they submit themselves to God, great things happen. Well, notice it's just not men. Um, women are included in this project as well. If you go back to chapter 35 and drop down to verse 22, you begin to see that women were involved in this as well. Verse 22, Then all whose hearts moved them, both men and women, they came and brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and bracelets and articles of gold. So did every man who presented an offering of gold to the Lord. Look at verse 26. All the women whose hearts stirred with a skill spun the goat hair. So tremendous uh, amount of sewing takes place and and uh, design in a lot of those uh, skins that took place and, and inside the um, tabernacle as well. Then drop down to verse 29. The Israelites and all the men and women whose hearts moved them to bring materials for all the work which the Lord had commanded Moses to be done brought a free will offering. So men and women, again, very much involved in the giving of this. And then go to chapter 38, verse 8. And this is pretty fascinating. Moreover, he made a laver of bronze with a base of bronze from the mirrors of the serving women who served at the doorway. The gals gave up their looking mirrors, their looking glass, just to see the Lord glorified in the tent of meetings. And so it seems to be a whole family, and doubtlessly children were involved with this as well, but the Lord loves to use women in their gifts. So often the church is attacked nowadays because we teach a biblical position of uh, manhood and womanhood, biblical womanhood and biblical manhood. We're constantly under attack. That's not going to go well um, for us in the future. Uh, they fight against this. They hate it. They want to put an end to that, that type of what they think is cruelty. But you show, show me a godly woman and I'll show you a woman who loves to glorify God in her role. And here, this is what the women do. And God's done that down through the ages. He's assembled people and he's often used women you know sarah we see her struggles in the old testament but in the new testament she's remembered as a a godly woman of old first peter 
3 reminds us of her preciousness and their work and is precious in the sight of God. You have the Hannahs and Ruths and the Deborahs and the Marys and Marthas and so forth. All of these women were women that God raised up to bring glory to him. And when you see this nation living out in the dirt, living in tents, men and women are serving God with a heart and a desire to see his plan fulfilled, not theirs. And that's when things happen. When men and women decide to say, I want to see God's plans happen. I'm willing to lay down my life and obey him and follow him. We see the same thing in the New Testament. There's some fun things to look at the New Testament. In Romans chapter 16, 1 through 2, we hear Paul commending you, commending the Roman church to our sister, Phoebe. And here she's this, the Bible calls her one who is the servant of the church. She's a beautiful woman. He tells her, receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of, of saints. Even there, the Bible's telling us that men and women are equal yet different because they bring different world, they have different roles, but they're to be honored equally as saints. It goes on to say and speak about her that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you. For she herself has also been a helper of many and of myself. Not too long later, he wrote to the church of Philippi in chapter 4. He says, I urge Eudia and Syntyche to live in harmony with the Lord. They may have been having a little difficulty there. But listen what he says about them. Indeed, true companions, I ask you also to help these women who share my struggle in the cause of the gospel. The Bible's telling us that, that women were intrinsically involved in the ministry of the gospel and the planning of these churches as the gospel went out even to the remotest ends of the earth at this time. And so here we constantly see that God has given women not a lesser role, but he's given them a different role to bring glory to himself. And I like that. When I study you know, an overall passage, and I know we're moving through this section very quickly, but those things jump off the pages at me. These men and women were uniquely gifted. And here, much of what they did were sewing and sewing. Can you imagine how many skins they had to knit together in order to make this tabernacle and how much work that took in craftsmanship? Now, we move to the, from there to the furnishings that we begin to see, and I just want to mention each one of them, and then we're going to end with a greater tabernacle. But in chapter 37, you start to see the furnishings that, that go forth. First uh, is the Ark of the Covenant. Chapters, chapter 37, 1 through 9, this is a construction. And, and here again, we have gifted men constructing this Ark of the Covenant with its angels on top of it and cherubim with wings stretched out and hammered out and overlaid with gold and such craftsmanship built on that. What's interesting is the mercy seat is not put on there and the tablets are not put in them until we get to chapter 40. But this Ark of the Covenant is made with great detail. And then next, in verses 10 through 16 there in chapter 37, we see the table of showbread. Uh, again, that's made and arranged, and, and yet the bread is not put on the table until chapter 40. Then from there, verse 17 through 24, the lampstand is hammered out and made with great craftsmanship and prepared. Verses 25 through 28, the altar of incense is next. And you remember we... When we looked at this back in 25 through 30, we, we saw Christ in every one of these aspects, right? Um, as we studied through there. Verse 37, verse, uh, chapter 37, verse 29, we see the anointing oil and the pure incense that was going to be used in that lamp. And I don't, I don't know if you remember how they, I taught how they extracted that oil and the purity of that oil so that it had almost no smoke to it. That was done there in chapter 37, verse 29. And then chapter 38, you start to move into a few more pieces, the altar of burning offering that would have gone in the courtyard there where all the lambs and bulls and the offerings were given. Verse 8, you would have got to the bronze basin. Chapter 38, verse 8. And then 9 through 20, you begin to see the courtyard coming and being formed. And, and, and again, it's a lot of work reading this a little bit because there's poles and there's hangers and there's rings and it's, and it's detailed work uh, just... Time, it took a tremendous amount of time and effort to put all this together. And then in verse 38, 21 through 30, you see the list of materials given and used. Uh, and I just kind of want to point out the precious metals that are here because this was a staggering fact. And, and, and just I, I tried to look at all this and look it up and try to get some rough measures, a rough 
overall amounts of what was given. It looks like somewhere around a ton of gold. One ton of gold. 2,000 pounds of gold. See, people go, oh, you know, how do you know there was 2 million people that came out of Egypt? Well, it probably takes about 2 million people to carry a ton of gold and rings. And oh, I mean, think about that. I mean, you know, it's like they're bringing Fort Knox out with them in little jewelry, right? There was three and a half tons of silver put into the tabernacle. Three and a half tons of silver by a nomadic people walking around the deserts with their goats. There's two and a half tons of bronze that they gathered. It's, it's staggering what they gave of the Lord, and they still had stuff left over. In fact, they, remember they said, stop bringing stuff, this is enough. And so the materialist here is just amazing what, what happens when God's people say, it all belongs to you, what do you want, God? Because we know you're going to care for us. And when, when God's people walk with him, amazing things happen. Churches get built, missionaries get supported, churches overseas get built. You know, we're just finishing a church in a physical building in, in, in with Pastor Melvin down in Honduras. I mean, we're greatly involved with that. Our church is probably one of the largest givers to that. And we're doing that. We're, serve, we're giving money all over. We're building seminaries in the Philippines. We're, we're much involved. Now, we're going to try to build some buildings ourselves here because of our growth. But, but it is amazing what God does through the giving of his people. When we bow our hearts to him. Chapter 39, we get back into some of the pieces, particularly when it pertains to the priesthood. And the ephod is, is described and built in chapter 39, 1 through 7. And then, of course, the breast piece or the breast plate, um, verses 18 through 21. And then he begins to give a list of other garments that were used by the high priest and the other priest, as well as they serve there, 22 through 31. But I want to drop down to verse uh, 32 through, um, through, 30, through 43 here and kind of pick it up here as this section ends. Verse 32, Thus all the work of the tabernacle, the tent of meetings, was completed. And the sons of Israel, now this is very important, did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. And they brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent and all its furnishings, its clasps, its boards, its bars, its pillars, its sockets. The covering of ram skins dyed red and the covering of porpoise skins and the screening veil. The ark of the testimony and its poles and its mercy seat. The tablet and the utensils and the bread of presence. The pure gold lampstand um, and, and its arrangement of lamps and all its utensils and the oil for the light. The gold altar and the anointing oil and the fragrance incense and the veil for the doorway of the tent. The bronze altar and its bronze grating. The poles and all the utensils, the labor and its stand. The hanging of the court, its pillars and its sockets and its screens for the gate of the court. Its cords, its pegs and all the equipment for the service of the tabernacle for the tent of the meeting. The woman garments for the ministering of the holy place. The holy garment garments of Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons and to minister as priests. So the sons of Israel did all the work according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. And look at this. And Moses examined all the work and behold, they had done it just as the Lord had commanded. This they had done and Moses blessed them. Well, here you see a real detailed description of all those chapters I just kind of scooted across, right? And, and everything is included there, right? And the language is really interesting. It grabbed my attention. It had a similar ring to the garden. In chapter 2 of Genesis, the Bible says the heavens and earth were completed in all of their host. It has a similar kind of verbiage, Hebrew verbiage. All of it was done, and God examined it. And here Moses is examining it. The, uh, and, and most likely the, a pre-incarnate Christ examined all that, that had been created, that he had created. And here Moses is examining to see this all brought before him. And, and notice there's no reference to how long this took. Um, there's a lot of speculation of how long this took, but there is no reference to it. But whatever they did, they did precisely, however long it took, they did precisely as God commanded them, they carried it out. Isn't it amazing when a group of people together walk with God? What can be accomplished? See, that's what we pray for here. Oh God, knit our hearts together in your Son 
cause us, each and every one of us, to confess sin, walk with you. Uh, search our hearts daily. See if there's any wickedness that, w- that is within us, Lord. Let's that, think about a group of people that would do that and walk with the Lord. And, and think about that it could ever be say all that God asked the members of Riverbend to do, they did, according to his word. What glory would be brought to God? Sons of Israel did all that God asked them. So they did. It's interesting, Moses inspects this work. Um, The word here is that he is scrutinizing it. I thought that was interesting. Moses didn't just take a glance and say, good job, good job. He scrutinized it. It's the idea he's examining it in verse 43. Is it done the way God said it's to be done? Boy, I think that's an issue in the church today. And I think it's an issue with leadership in the church today. Leadership fails to do things God's way. There's a lot of hard things that have to be done by leadership in church. But it's not fun because you're going to end up with somebody mad at you. And nobody wants somebody mad at them. And so leadership often caves to the, to the desires of the people. Verse of doing what God says and examining, are we doing it God's way? A lot of pressure on pastors as people come in and want them to believe their story and what they're doing. Do we examine their marriage from the scriptures and say, hey, this is what the Bible says. Examine how we run children's ministries, how we, how we train the, young, the next generation, how we disciple people. Do we examine that the way God wants it done? Isn't he worthy of that? Or do we try to manipulate constantly and say, well, you yeah, doesn't understand my situation. See, Moses, Moses was bent on doing it God's way. He scrutinized it. He wanted it done that way. And when they did that, notice at the end of verse 43, so Moses blessed them. And I think that probably reflects those people who were uniquely involved with it, whether they were givers or uh, designers or, or inscribers or whatever they did. He blessed them because they did it God's way. And that's what we look for, Right? You know, there's nothing wrong with asking for the blessing of God, but do things His way. I don't know how many times I've said to couples in my office, if you want God to bless your marriage, do it His way. (laughs) You have to do it His way. Uh, Otherwise, you're going to find yourself just struggling and frustrated and at each other, and difficulties are going to come because you're not doing it God's way. And it's not easy to do things God's way, right? It's difficult. It goes against our flesh. But these are fascinating verses, aren't they? They did it God's way. And Moses blessed them. So this Moses, this covenant mediator, grants this divine blessing. Well, as I wind this up, I want to go to my third thought because I want to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ because the Old Testament's pointing to something, right? Otherwise, we, you know, we'd get lost in you know, embroidery and carpet and wall hangings, and we don't want to do that. All of this is pointing to something greater, isn't it? It's pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. So look at the third point that I have. The tabernacle made without hands and a righteousness prepared for the presence of God. Before we get into chapter 40 next week, I just wanted to remind ourselves that God had something more, something greater, a better tabernacle, a better temple, a better high priest, a better mediator, and we find that in the Lord Jesus Christ. We turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7. And we'll take a little quick little tour through some verses. And as I studied this, as you're turning there, as I studied this, it is really a beautiful tabernacle they built. It's absolutely gorgeous. There's a ton of gold in it. There's, there's three tons of silver in this thing. There's two and a half tons of bronze in this thing. There's countless skins and, and, and drapery and curtains and uh, detailed work. It's an amazing place. I, I really would have loved to have seen it. But I'd rather see the one in heaven. And this is where we find our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26. We'll start there and we'll just make our way through a few chapters here. Just reading a few verses here and there. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest. Hmm, this is a different high priest. Holy and innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, stop right there. 
as we go on and, and look at, you know, we're going to move our way through Leviticus a little quicker, I promise. Um, but as we look through Leviticus, you're going to see these men who now are going to fulfill all of the blueprints of what God desired for the priesthood. But in it all, you're also going to see the cleansing, the repeated cleansing. Um, they're going to be endowed and put on top of them all this gold and this certain dressed a certain way. And, and all this work is going to have to take for them to come into the presence of God, but not our Lord Jesus. He was a high priest. Notice what it says here, speaking of Jesus Christ, who's able to save us and draw us near, verse 25, but he was holy. That means he was absent of sin. He is not like the priest of Exodus or Leviticus. He is holy. He's set apart from sin. He's set apart from evil. He's innocent. That's the idea of blamelessness. You know, that's what he calls us at salvation. We're holy and blameless. Once God has saved us in his son. But this is the nature of Jesus Christ, right? He's our older brother. His goal is to conform us to his image. And so he is holy and innocent. And he comes before a God, holy and innocent, undefiled. And everything gets defiled, doesn't it, in this world? Every beautiful thing God has even given gets defiled. Sexual relationships get defiled. People defile one another. Immorality is just rampant. It always has been if you study the Bible. But not our Lord. He's undefiled. He's untouched by wickedness. He's separate from sinners. Praise the Lord he's separate from sinners. Because he can never go to the cross for our sake. He's separate from us. Certainly before our salvations. He's exalted above the heavens. There's no priest, no human priest ever, ever could that be set of. Exalted above the heavens. It's an unlimited position that he has. Look at verse 27. Look, look what really sets him apart. Who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices. And here was the problem. First for their own sins and then for the sins of the people. What a constant job that had to be. Anytime and every time that priest, human priest, had to go before God, had to come into his presence, he had to offer sacrifices for his own self, let alone the people that were so sinful. The Bible says in the end of verse 27, because of this, he did once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus did it once. He was the perfect high priest. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. But the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. And so we have this perfect high priest. And as beautiful as this tabernacle is, and as beautiful as the garments are that these priests wear, as they come towards the presence of God and they offer sacrifices, dressed in these gorgeous, uh, beautiful, hand-woven outfits that they wear of, of breastplates and ephods and hats and so forth, oh, they're imperfect. But we have a Jesus who's perfect. Look at chapter 9 as we start to think about the tabernacle. So much effort when you study 35 through 39 on this building of this tabernacle. And when, it, when I just took you to the end and it says they brought it all before him, that maybe years of work? I, I'm not sure how long that took. But notice this, verse 11, chapter 9, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of good things to come, and then look at this, he entered through a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this creation. Praise the Lord for that. It doesn't come through a human building. He goes into the very presence of God. Remember, God is sharing a human blueprint of an earthly tabernacle with Moses. And he is reproducing that. We can fall greatly short of what is in heaven, but yet done to the best of their abilities, endowed by the Spirit, it still falls short. And, and that tabernacle was marked with a constant coming before God for the forgiveness of sins, a constant year after year. But not our Lord Jesus Christ. He enters into a more ta perfect tabernacle. Many of you know the book of Hebrews is about this greater theme. There's a greater mediator. There's a greater high priest. And here, there's a greater tabernacle. And it's one not built with hands. Even though those great craftsmen that were mentioned there in Exodus, uh, and they probably did an outstanding job, and it was an amazing building to look at humanly, it does not compare to something not built by human hands. 
spoken by God. And this is where he resides in his holy place. Or angels worship him. Notice it goes on to say, not of his creation and not through the blood of goats and calves. What a beautiful thing here. um, Chapter 10 tells us that the blood of goats and calves would never hold off the wrath of God. It had to be offered over and over and and just, just temporarily satisfied it. But the Lord Jesus Christ comes with his own blood. Look at middle verse 12, his own blood entered the holy place once and for all have and obtained an eternal redemption. Drop down to verse 24 just for the sake of time. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself. That's how great our Savior is. When he died on the cross and there he propitiated our sins, he walks into the presence of God and says, I am the final lamb. Do you accept me, Father? Do I propitiate the sins of all who would believe? Do I satisfy your wrath? And the Lord says, absolutely. What a beautiful thing. And notice that he appeared there in the presence of God. I want you to see those last few words there for us. He appeared there for us. In this holy place, not made with hands, he appears before God himself for us. He didn't do it year after year. One more set of verses, chapter 10, verse 10. By this will we have been sanctified, set apart, right? Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time and after time in the same sacrifice which can never take away sin. But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time onward until his enemies be made under his feet. I thought that was fascinating. I want to just end this tonight with reminding ourselves that we don't have a weak high priest. We don't have a priest that would fall dead in the presence of God if he was not cleansed. We have an eternal, perfect Son of God, holy and innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, who walks in in our presence, for our, for our presence, in presence of God for us. And, and furthermore, there's, there's all this beautiful furniture, and as I studied that and went through that and looked at the craftsmanship of each one of them, I began to realize there's something missing in the tabernacle. And you see it in my title here that I gave you, I said, a tabernacle without a chair. Isn't that interesting? Of all the furnishing that's in there, there's tables uh, for bread, there's basins to wash in, there's altars to burn sacrifices on, there's even a great, a great mercy seat that's there where God resides, but there's no chair. But I think what's fascinating is when you think about the priest of this day, they were working constantly. There was no time to sit. Their work was what? Never done. They were constantly having to offer sacrifices. Year after year after year after year they had to offer sacrifices to hold off the wrath of God. But not our Savior. Not our Savior. There's a chair in heaven in a sense. It sits at the right hand of the Father. And the Bible says when Jesus finished propitiating the Father's wrath, when he satisfied all When God raised him from the dead, he went and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Jesus himself said just the week before his death, he says, the next time you see me, I'll be at the right hand of my Father. We see in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen is being stoned to death and there at the end of his life, God opens the heavens and he's able to look into a glimpse into heaven for a moment. You watch him espound these amazing sight that he's seen, but what he says that made them so angry was he says, I see Jesus at where? at the right hand of the Father. And the Bible says they gnashed their teeth and rushed at him in one accord. It made them so angry. The earthly temple had nowhere to sit because there was always work to be done. In the heavenly temple, it was done, completed. Our Lord rests. He rests from his work. And I think one of the problems today is we don't rest with him. We're still gauging ourselves by the good things we do sometimes. And that's exhausting. 
You've heard me say from this pulpit that legalistic people are usually pretty angry and mean. You've got to be careful of them. They'll bite your head off. Because your skirt's too short and your hair's too long. And it doesn't measure up with this and my standards and so forth. And you're always working, right? They're always trying to fix something or somebody or get something straightened out. Do you rest in God? Do you rest in His finished work of His Son? See, once we rest and quit fighting that, we begin to start walking with Him and magnifying and glorifying and being overwhelmed with His glory. And yes, life is difficult. We live in a fallen world and we're surrounded with death and difficulties that happen, but there can be joy in these times. And we can be used of God when we first give of ourselves and say, oh God, take my life, it's yours. I remember one time somebody came up to me after church one day, I wasn't here, it was in a previous church, and he said, well, Pastor, you, you guys are just super blessed. God just endows you guys with an extra blessing, and you don't know what real life's like. You kind of, all right, he's, I got to now make sure I'm patient and kind, because I want to punch him. <laughs> See, that's not true. I, I, let, me, let me tell you, that one of the reasons why many pastors that you know have tremendous joy is because they spend their time in the Word. They spend their time studying God while they're working very hard at many other things, right? Difficult situations that come along, and you're always counseling, you're always carrying a weight, a burden you can't hardly imagine as you do this. But the reason pastors are pastors sometimes is because they have experienced the finished work of Jesus Christ in a way that affects their daily life. And that doesn't have to be just for the priest or the pastors and all those, those people that everybody thinks are endowed. It can be for each and every individual that commits themselves to Christ. Listen, there's so many people in this church that I could use an example of that that work in difficult situations, have difficult things gone on in their life, suffer from consequences of past sin before they were saved, and they have tremendous joy. And I watch them, and I marvel, and the pastors and the elders of this church go, wow, thank God for them. You can have joy even in difficult times because you don't have to work your way to God. He's done it all for you. And yes, we weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And there are difficult times. But because Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father and finished it all, look, there's going to be a great end to this thing. And we may suffer in this life at times. We may make a couple of trips out through the desert. <laughs> Little spiritual camping trips that aren't very fun. We may go through that at times. God may test us and put us through those things. But there's true joy in giving our hearts to the Lord. The Macedonian church was well marked because they first gave themselves to the Lord. Have you given yourself to the Lord? When's the last time you said, Lord, I know I've given myself to you, but I took it back a couple of times. I give you myself. I give you my marriage. I give you my children. I give you my church. I give you my abilities that you gifted me in my work and my job. I give them to you. Take them for your glory, God. See, we have a priest, a high priest, that entered not into tabernacle made with hands. And all the labor and work and suffering and all the problems that came with that. We have a great high priest that entered in the presence of God for us. We are the greatest people in the world. And don't let that fill your head with pride. But that's who we are. We are God's children. We have his inheritance. He's endowed us with this relationship that's eternal and we'll live forever with him. And we'll bask in the glory of Jesus Christ. There'll be no need for sun or moon or any other light because we'll be with the Lord. And we look at that, we think about heaven and I tell you, I've said it all my life and I can't get my mind around it because it's so far beyond my own imagination. That awaits for us. Can you live for 70 measly years in this world for Jesus? Maybe 75, maybe 80 if he gives it to you. Can you live for him? Is he worth it? Give your life to Jesus and see what he does. If you don't, I promise life will be hard and you'll have an internal wrestling that will break you. And you may be saved because if God saved you, he won't lose you. But you'll miss all the great blessings of having joy in this earth. 
You'll miss all the blessings of casting crowns to the Lord. Stay in the fight. Stay in the fight. It's worth it. It's hard. If you need help, get help. Come help. Say, Pastor, find a dear friend who loves Christ. Say, help me. But submit to God. Submit to His Word. Have joy. And finally, just have great faith. If you have a marriage that's struggling, be honest about it. And tell God and somebody else that you're struggling and you need help. Don't hide your sin. God sees it. I, I, many times I'm through my times of repentance with the Lord. I said, Lord, I've been hiding this from you for two weeks. And that's pretty stupid because you already know about it. You start to confess your fears and your doubts and your anger and sin struggles that are internal. And you go to a Lord who's forgiven you and he restores your joy. You begin to walk with him again. And you begin to be a vital part of the community, a vital part of God's people. And great things happen when people submit themselves to this. And it's not about buildings. It's about the glory of the Lord. Because in the end, like we'll see next week in chapter 40, he comes and fills the tabernacle. And everyone steps back in awe of him. Oh, we want God with us. We want God with us. Ask him what he's doing and ask him if you can join him. And ask him to fix the things that are broken in your life so you can be fully on board. He'll do that. He'll do that. He loves you. You're his son. You're his daughter. Amen? Father, what amazing truths as we look at this building, this physical building, you gave a blueprint to Moses to build, and then you endow people with spiritual gifts and physical gifts, and, and they all get this done, and they give and give, and an amazing building gets done. And you're certainly glorified by their human work and the effort they put in, and we'll see next week you adorn that building with your presence in such a spectacular way. But yet in all of it, Lord, it was still material things, things built with hands. Father, we know you reside in a heaven not built with hands of men, not of this creation. And your son came to this earth. He stepped out of that place to breathe the dust of earth. He walked among sinners. He healed the sick and cast out the demons. But all with the purpose of going to the cross, he showed his impeccability throughout his earthly days. And he was sinless, innocent, perfect, undefiled. And yet we killed him anyway. Our sins put him on the cross. That was your plan, Lord. You predetermined that plan. It was the only way to get us into this eternal kingdom, this heaven that is built without hands. It's it's him bringing his own blood. It's him bringing us into this greater tabernacle, Lord. And we needed that. We had no hope on our own. And then, Lord, not only did you save us, but you gathered us. We're your people. We're your family. We're your children. You put us into a home, a family, a church, an assembly of people. And you said to love one another and care for one another and minister to one another and help each other heal and love one another. And all those one another's, Lord, you told us to do that so we bring glory. And you uniquely gifted us, each and every one of us, with unique gifts. So we can serve each other and care for one another and bring glory through our different roles, Lord. Lord, when we do that, it's such a beautiful place. But Father, I confess for myself and for those that sit here before me, there are days we don't do that. We're consumed with our problems. We're upset because people don't understand what we're going through. And yet we have a God who said, I suffered everything. I was tempted in all ways. Come to me when you're in need of mercy. I will give it to you. And so Lord, forgive us. Forgive us when we fail to deal with our sin properly, Lord. We fail to run to you and Desperate help. And we end up hurting those around us. Church starts to limp. Lord, you don't want us to be that way. You want us to be spiritually fit, 
hands and feet and arms and eyes and ears of the body of Christ. Fully functioning and running and bringing extreme glory to you while we receive the great joy and happiness of following you. Lord, I know these things are easier said than done. And so I ask this morning, this evening, that you would help us, Lord, as a church, as Riverbend Community Church, we would be a church, each individual would submit themselves, give themselves to you first. And let's see what you'll do here. Lord, I thank you for bringing me to a church where this has been evident, and yet there's still work to be done, Lord. So cause us to unite our hearts together for the cause of the glory of Christ through the understanding of this perfect, infallible, all-sufficient Word of God, Lord. And may we do things your way. And may your Son examine it and bless because we did it your way. We ask you to do this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.